Hi. Glad you're here. Happy Easter. How great, how great, how great is your love for us. I'm going to ask you to trade that out. We're going to carry over a thought that we had last week and on, on Good Friday when we substituted this thought. How great, how great, how great is your love for me? Can you make it personal? Let's do this on three. We'll practice. I know it's a long sentence, but the word's for me, right? Okay, on three. One, two, three, for me. Okay. Okay, we're, we're, we're like hundreds of people in here, and you sound like ten, all right? <laughs> I mean, you got nothing over the eight o'clock crowd that was in here, so, and I beat them up pretty good on this, too. So here we go. One, two, three, for me. Okay, excellent. He did it for you. He did it for me. And he didn't have to. It doesn't matter your background, how you came in here, your baggage, whatever you got going on in your world. God loves you. And his desire is that you would know him and be in relationship with him so we get to explore that power of God this morning. Maybe you saw the billboard. Maybe you saw the flyers that we handed out. That Maybe that drew you in. I don't know. Maybe this is your home church. Uh, I'm excited to do this with you. Last week, we got to look into Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. It's kind of an anchor verse talking about the power of God. We're going to use it again this morning to launch us into a story. So you'll see Ephesians 1, 18 and 1, 19 come up on the screen. And th then when we read it, I'm going to pray with you. So let me show you that verse first. Look, look with me on the screen. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart that they may be enlightened, in other words, that they would be opened, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you will know. Because God wants you to know the power. You can lean over into verse 19 so that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. I know there's a lot of believers in the auditorium right now, but with this many people, there's always a chance that there's somebody who's not there yet, not convinced yet. Maybe you came because your mom asked you to or a friend asked you to or, or you kind of got guilted into it. I don't know. I don't know the situation, but God's power can be towards you if you believe. Let me pray with you about that very issue. Let's ask God to inspire our discussion time this morning. Father, we come before you right now asking that you would speak and that my words would not get in the way. And Father, protect the words that come out of my mouth, but that we would emphasize your word and what you have to say. So, Father, we ask that. We invite that. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit who is active in this place to combine that with the activity of your word, which you said is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, use the combination to do what only you can do. We ask for this in the magnificent name of our King Jesus and God's people said, Amen. There's no clearer view of the power of God than what you find in the resurrection story. And so as we look at just one verse that leads us into Luke 24, maybe you brought a Bible with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to go to Luke 24 in just a few minutes, but I want to start out with you in Matthew 28. And we see this amazing image that was given to us. In Matthew 28, verse 2, it says this, A severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And that's code in the Bible for they fainted. 
okay? You've got guards, Roman guards, who fainted and did a face plant in the ground. Became like dead men because of the awesome sight that they have. I need to remind you this morning, and I need to remind myself, God did not have to remove the stone. He did it for me. He didn't have to remove the stone to let Jesus out. Death cannot hold him. Scripture says very clearly the stone wasn't there in order to let people be prevented from getting in and get at the body. It was there to prove that Jesus could be resurrected with the power of God without man's involvement whatsoever. That man put a stone there and sealed it. It was like a bonus that no one could violate, that God could do what only God could do. So we find the tomb with a stone over it, and Jesus is resurrected from behind the stone. Why was the stone removed? I said he did it for me. He did it so that we could see inside. He did it as evidence of what he had done for us. So when you see the earthquake, and when you see the angel, and you see the guards fainting, that's just the effects of the resurrection. Unfortunately, nobody's inside the tomb except Jesus when the resurrection actually takes place. It just that happened. If you're looking for it in the Bible, it's not there. There's no verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to give you a physical description of the resurrection. There's no description from inside. So if you're looking for it, it's not there. That had happened, get your amens ready, that had happened is the reason we're here this morning. How it happened, that's the power of God. It's God's power to intervene in circumstances that seem completely collapsed around everyone. To grasp at the power of God, to grasp at the understanding of God's power toward you, we have to go to a God conversation. We have to look at a story, and first I want you to catch the emotions that are going on around this circumstance. I'm gonna show you what's going on in the lives of some women who show up at the tomb, and they're overwhelmed with what they see because they're coming for a funeral. They're coming for a sad reason. They're coming to embalm a body. They have no idea of the joy that waits on the other side. So let me latch on with you to the emotional state of the women who show up. Mark 16, 8 says this. They went out and fled from the tomb. So the women have gone in the tomb, they see what they see, and they run away. The women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is clearly not talking about the soldiers because they've already passed out, right? So this is the women who got the first look and they got to see this angel and we see immediately some words that pop off the page. Now, if you're new to New Hope, we use Greek words here, so um, relax. I'm just going to give you three, and they're going to come up on the screen, kind of a sensory overload, but these are the only ones I'm going to give you this morning. I want you to catch the emotion that's going on here. Tromos, ecstasis, phoibeo. Now, tromos we're really familiar with in the English world because we use the word trauma all the time. They're in trauma. And so that's put this in, them in a place where mentally the state has caused them to quake with fear, literally trembling, shaking. And the next word you're familiar with, ecstasis, so that's the word ecstasy. But we use it for different reasons. In this world, they used it as a displacement of the mind. 
can't make sense out of what they're seeing. And so that causes phoibeo, which is phobia. Phoibeo means to be exceedingly fearful, and they run because they can't make sense of this. This is exactly how you would expect humans to react if they've just encountered God's power. Raw emotion, visceral reaction. It's instinctive. There's a surge of adrenaline going on here. They run, but there's a gut-wrenching reality surrounding them, and it's pursuing them and chasing them down. The reality of what they've just encountered does not connect with normal experience. How do you make sense of this? It's a shock factor. Physicians know what I'm talking about. Accident scenes, they see individuals go into shock. Police officers see this. There may be no physical damage to the body, but the mind is in overload mode. And so you're seeing the shock right here. What do you do with this information? It's too powerful. How do you rationalize the inexplicable? The power of God has just produced the greatest event in the history of the world, and their eyewitness experience is stretching at the seams of what they know to be reality. That's one post-resurrection experience in detail. Here's a second one, and we're going to find it in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there if you haven't done it. Maybe you have your Bible on your phone, but in Luke 24, we get this amazing story of these individuals who actually run into Jesus not too long after the resurrection. And they give us an information, detailed, filled story, and it is beautiful. Go with me to Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, behold, when you see it in the Bible, that's God's way of saying, pay attention, listen up. That's God saying, behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. How in the world is that possible? How do you walk with somebody all that time and they're such a close friend and you can't even recognize them? How do you explain that? I'm here to tell you that they're not recognizing him. He didn't allow them. He prevented it. It's a gift to you this morning. I want you to see how. I'm going to help you to understand that. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 13 says, that very day, meaning the same day the tomb is emptied, the same day that they discovered the body's gone, these guys are headed home because it's over. Everything that they had hoped for had ended all their hopes, all their dreams have been crushed. Everything attached to Jesus has been dismantled because he died on a cross. And as far as they're concerned, everything has collapsed in their world. So they're going back home. Verse 14 says they're talking with each other about all these things. If, if you're older than 20, maybe 19, you might remember the shock factor at 9-11. All those years ago, what, 16 years now? Do you remember the sadness combined with the confusion? The, the, the dismay? With the utter astonishment? You translate that over to this situation. They're still in shock. They're sad and they're confused and they cannot figure it out. How could Jesus be celebrated by tens of thousands of people only seven days earlier as the king 
And now he's crucified as a common criminal by Rome. Verse 15 says that Jesus approached them and he began traveling. Now, don't let that throw you off course. It was common for individuals to join into other individuals because everyone walked in that day to just saddle up alongside somebody and jump into the conversation. And so we find Jesus doing exactly that, and they don't recognize him. Question for you. Would you, would you plan that? The risen king of kings can go any place, and he shows up in backwater Israel on a dusty, dirty road to walk with two individuals after a blazing angel causes an earthquake and Jesus is resurrected by God and he shows up on this back dirty road. It is the astonishing condescension of God doing exactly what he did before the crucifixion, after the crucifixion because he knows they're sad and he knows they're confused and he's gonna go meet them right at the point of their need. I gotta be honest with you this morning. If it was me, I'd be showing up at Pilate's palace, right? It's like, hey, look at here, right? Or at least go to the Supreme Court and say, you know, you guys put me on the cross, right? Yeah, I was dead. But he doesn't do that. He finds them on this back country road doing exactly what God does. He knows the hurt and he's concerned for them and the concern doesn't change. So verse 16 says they're prevented from recognizing him. So here's why I said this is a gift to you. How is that possible? They've been his followers. Well, Mark gives us a little bit of insight. Look with me on the screen at Mark's version of this. He said, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them. We're not talking about an alien, okay? We're talking about a different appearance. It didn't look like Jesus to them. Now, that's part of it. But there's something else here. There's something that's remarkable. Earlier I said they were prevented from recognizing Jesus, and it's a gift to you. Why? Why are they kept from recognizing him for hours? You're going to see that in just a moment. It literally is about two and a half hours. He fully intends to help them because he doesn't want to leave them in this place of despair. But notice the priority. Before he can open their physical eyes, he needs to open the eyes of their heart. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you will know what is the surpassing power of the greatness of God towards those of us who believe. You see God bringing in this same aspect right here. See, it is of the greatest significance that they see with their heart through God's word. Why? because they live in a world just like you do. It doesn't matter that it's the first century or that it's 2017. They live by faith. That's what scripture says. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. These individuals need to see by faith what they understand God's word to say. So just like you, they have not seen the actual resurrection. Check this. They haven't seen Jesus. They don't know that they're looking God in the face. No one had actually been inside the tomb during the resurrection. They only had an empty tomb. 
And after 33 AD, every generation of the billions of people on this planet who professed Jesus Christ, every single one of those had to walk by faith, not by sight, because we don't have his physical presence here. So I tell you, this story is a gift from God to you because he says we have to rely on his word and the things that he has declared to be true. That's why God says in Hebrews, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the very spirit of an individual. God's word goes deep. Let's go into the story a little bit further. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Just stop. Are you kidding me? You can use whatever synonym you want. I'm going to say dumbfounded, astonished, bewildered. How is it possible? Jesus is the only thing people are talking about. And now this new twist emerges. That very morning, his body is gone. It's not enough that they crucified him, but his body is missing, and there's no official statements from Rome. Rome hasn't published anything, and they stayed in town until at least noon, maybe 1 o'clock, and rumors are racing through the city of a resurrection. How can you not know? Watch verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, and I love this, God, God's saying this, what things? Okay, I'll amplify that in just a minute. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Seriously? How can you not know? Are you not reading your news feed, man? What's going on here? See, they have to conclude that Jesus is a tourist. Are you the only one visiting Israel? Maybe they think he's there for the Passover. So bear down with me in verse 19 for just a minute. He said to them, what things? See, a great teacher, Jesus is the greatest teacher, will do that every time. Draw them in by allowing them to reveal their heart. So very simple question, what things? And they can show what they're thinking. So God says, catch this, God says, Tell me about God, right? Tell me about these things. So I read this fascinating news story yesterday of this guy who's pretending to be a cop down in Florida, right? And uh, he, he bought a Crown Vic that still had the spotlight on it, and he put his own little bubble lights on top of it, and he was pulling people over on the highway down in Miami. And uh, what he didn't know until yesterday morning was that he was eventually going to get caught um, because he pulled over another police officer don't want to do that. So he didn't know, though, until he pulled over an unmarked squad car, came up alongside it, and the guy put the window down, and before he ever got to the window to look inside, he said to the driver, can I see your license and registration, and then looked in the window and saw a uniformed officer. Tell me about God. <laughs> Bring it. Obviously, the guy got arrested for impersonating an officer, right? So we've got some guys here who think they know about God and all the things that are supposed to be going on, and they can't make sense of it, and God says, tell me about it. What things? And they're going to reveal their heart. 
Watch in verse 21. This is how they reveal their heart, just a sentence. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. What an amazing image, church. It's an image of the gospel springing right out of here. They're hoping, hoping for a brand new beginning, hoping that he was going to fix things, hoping that they had discovered the one who could rescue and give them a new start. We're hoping. Here's the gospel part of it. God had already accomplished it. They just didn't know. They didn't know that their need had already been met. You don't have to hope this morning. You come in here with things not going right in your life. Maybe you look great because it's Easter morning, and you do look pretty, by the way. But hear this. You might look really pretty on the outside, but maybe something's messed up inside. And maybe you're hoping, and maybe that hope brought you in. Maybe your hope needs to be found right here where they say, we were hoping, and Jesus hears them say it, but he doesn't reveal himself yet, that they don't need to hope because hope stands in front of them. The need has already been met. So they use the word redeem. It's a powerful word. You use it all the time. I use it. I have a daughter who collects coupons. She likes to redeem coupons, right? Save money that way. That's great. Good procedure. We know that when you redeem something, a price has to be paid, right? This is my dad, the car dealer, used to say, Mark, there's nothing free in life, right? Okay? So redeem means there's a trade taking place. They use the word redeem here because they know there's a price to be paid. Everybody knows to redeem something, there's a price. What they fail to grasp is the price of forgiveness. So the confirmation of their unbelief is in verse 21 when they said, Hey, man, it's the third day. Alluding to the fact it's late. The third day is here, and he hasn't shown up yet. Some women amazed us because they said they saw some things, but we haven't seen them. Watch. Next verse, verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us, but they, when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But catch this. This is the revealing of their heart. Him they did not see. Him they did not see. Physically, they didn't lay their eyes on him, even though they've got all the evidence. Check this. The women have had an Isaiah experience. And if you've read Isaiah 6, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Isaiah in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophet, says that he was caught up before God's presence. And he said, my eyes, they've seen the king of glory. The train of his robe fills the temple. And he said to himself, woe, I am undone, for my eyes have seen the king of glory, and I am but a man. And he collapses within himself. That's exactly what happened to these women. Terror filled them. They didn't know what to do with the circumstances. The thing these individuals on the Maus Road are trying to press here is they didn't find him. It's an empty tomb. They got supporting evidence, but that's not enough. 
the power of God has produced the greatest evidence in world history, and they're doubting by doing this. I don't see, so I don't believe. Even though they've got God in front of them, he's just remaining quiet. So catch this, the disciples are not predisposed to believe in the validity of the resurrection. Move forward with me into verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Love this. God's turning the tables, right? So God now is going to do to them what they did to him. How can you not know? How can you not understand? Seriously? See, this is in the same category as Jesus, at least to me, standing with Martha and Mary when he's about to resurrect Lazarus. So Jesus is in the cemetery, and Jesus tells them to remove the stone from the tomb where Lazarus is at. And Martha says, no, Lord, it's been four days. He stinks by now. They want their brother remembered that way as a rotting corpse, right? So Jesus turns to Martha and Mary and says, did I not tell you? that if you believe, you will see God on display? Or or what about the guy who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus? There were multiples of those, but one in particular stands out because he brings his son who's foaming at the mouth and writhing in pain on the ground, out of control, speaking in guttural voices, keeps throwing himself in fires, and the man says to Jesus, if you can, If you can, will you help my son and take mercy on him? So Jesus is incredulous and says, if I can, don't you know who you're talking to? With God, all things are possible. This is in that same category. See, the outward inability to recognize Jesus, this is one of the reasons we need a new building, right? (laughs) It's Easter morning. Can't you stop the trains? Okay, I'll let it pass. The inability to outwardly recognize Jesus is just a reflection of the inward reality of where their hearts are at. Their hearts are hard, and there's this inward unbelief. So in the first century, you find people just like today. Jesus is not insulting them. He's just saying, you guys foolish, slow of heart. I'm going to put that in the category of things I never want to hear God say to me. Right? Foolish, slow of heart. He's just calling them out, stating a reality. Verse 27, and the rebuke is really, really gracious that you just heard, but watch him. He immediately takes him on a tour. Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Moses, through all the prophets, you may not know this because you might be new to church, but Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books called the Torah. They're called the books of Moses. So God goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Why does he go there? This is one I'm speculating on, but I'm pretty sure because it's called the Proto-Evangelon. Genesis 3.15, Genesis chapter 3, check it later yourself today. But in Genesis chapter 3, you find the fall of man. By the time you come to verse 15, God is in a conversation with Lucifer. And he's got the two original beings in front of him. 
who just fell because they rebelled against God. So God engages in a conversation with Satan. And in verse 15, he says to him specifically, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and your seed, her seed, will strike you and you will bruise him on the heel, meaning striking out at Jesus, and he will crush you. That's proto-evangelon, God in Genesis saying, there's one coming, there's a deliverer coming who's going to rescue. So in the very beginning, God says to Satan, if you think you've won, you're wrong. You do not rule. So God says to Satan, in the very moment he assumes he triumphed, there is one coming who is a deliverer. So beginning in Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, major and minor, he explains to them why he needs to come. And I've got to be honest with you, church, this devastates me. And the reason it devastates me is for this purpose. Eons before I was born on this planet, God knew that I was going to need to be rescued. He did it for me and he did it for you and that's why I wanted you to say for me this morning because long before you ever walked this planet, God laid a plan to rescue and forgive and bring us back into relationship with him again. You can go beyond the book of Genesis because we're told it was laid before the world was ever created that he put this purpose in place. So we're not told specifically, but I can speculate that's the place. Verse 26, just bear down with me on it. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? He did it for me. Let's do it on three. One, two, three, for me. Was it not necessary that he would have to come? and be killed and die for the sins of the world? It devastates me, and I have to say this. How horrible is the state of fallen man that that is what's necessary? Like, how messed up are we? We know, because we walk with it. We, we feel the sense of sin. We know it's there. We don't need some preacher to tell us that. It's, it's just there. It lives with us, and we don't know what to do with it. So we try and forget it, and we just try and move on and do other things to distract us from it. Well, let me show you how Charles Simeon said it. This is a guy I like to quote. He lived back in the 1800s. Uh, old dead theologian, okay, 1827. Inexpressibly dreadful is the guilt which requires God's only son to compensate for it. So we're told in verse 27, he explained all these things concerning himself, and he goes on a seven-mile walk. So think Hazlitt to Williamston right now, okay? Seven miles, and you get to be alone with Jesus for two hours. Who would sign up for that? Okay, I wouldn't be here this morning, I'll tell you that. If he invited me on it, I'd be all over that. Every one of us would want to be part of this, to be able to ask questions and listen. There's no greater lesson ever taught. Because there is no room in their understanding for the death of a Messiah, therefore they have no place in their understanding for a resurrection. Because they don't think they need to be forgiven of anything. They're God's chosen people. They're Jews. They're Israelites. 
descendants of Moses and David for crying out loud. What would we need to be forgiven for? We're already chosen. There's no room in their understanding for the death of the Messiah. Therefore, there is no place for a resurrection. If you're you're not tracking with me on this, hear this. If you don't see the need of having your sins taken away from you this morning, why would a price need to be paid? A lot of Americans ask that. Why did Jesus have to die? See, if you don't think you have any sins to deal with, you're not seeing the need for a sacrifice. Therefore, there's no need for a resurrection. Why do I need to buy into that? Jesus' explanation by taking them all the way through the Old Testament is this. This is not a series of events that went terribly out of control. This is not like God lost control of things. This was ordained by God, and there's purpose in it. It means for you this morning, if you're a believer, death is not the end because the tomb is empty. Somebody say amen. Amen. The tomb is empty. Death is not the end. There's got to be a purpose in it. It took me 15 minutes to get to that. Paul summed it up in one sentence. He's a lot smarter than I am. Look on the screen. Romans 4. We love Romans, don't we, New Hope? He, Jerry's the only one saying amen to that one. He, (laughs) He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, that's our sin. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So it's absolutely true, your sin killed him, my sin killed him, but for our justification, God raised him. See, the resurrection is God's proof that he accepted the sacrifice. The fact that he rose tell us the price has been paid in full. So if you've got a body inside the tomb, you got no justification today, but the body's gone. So you're justified. So you can sing praise songs really, really loud. You can celebrate because of what he did. Are we together on that? Okay. Let's let's finish the story. I'll land the plane. Verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, verse 30, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them, verse 31. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. This is like Paul with the scales dropping off his eyes. What? What What am I not seeing? What did I just see here? I'd love to unpack that with you. But I'd like to do the book of Luke, actually, after we finish the book of Romans, so like five years from now, okay? (laughs) And you think I'm joking, right? (laughs) I'd love to go deeper into that, but I can't. But watch their response in verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit that we just prayed for when we started this. Bringing the word to life, revealing the power of God. Some of you right now are feeling that electricity and you can't explain it. God's word is becoming alive to you. Things are making sense that didn't make sense before. And the Holy Spirit is illuminating your heart. Watch the response for these guys in verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem 
and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen. So they go back to Jerusalem. Would you walk or would you run? I'm thinking you're going to run if you can. I'd be running seven miles. I'm not sure I'm in shape for that, but I'd run part of the way. You'd, you'd want to let people know it's true. It's true. He's alive. These things had to happen. I'm thinking Cleopas, he probably told this story the rest of his life. Anybody who would listen, I've got to tell you about this. The reason you hear them saying, were not our hearts burning within us, is because of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Check this. Before they ever recognized Jesus with their physically active eyes, they say our hearts were already burning. Something was registering with us. We're not our hearts burning. The scriptures are at work. It's like a fire consuming you because faith comes by hearing and hearing, finish it, church, hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, we're done. Ephesians 1.18, here's the anchor verse. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. There's always two groups gathered together in a church. You may not know that, but there's a group of people who are fully convinced, completely believe, and there are those who are not yet there yet. Some who think, I'll never be there. I just came here as a favor. Hear this. I want to speak to you if you came here as a favor and you think this doesn't apply to me. But yet you have an inkling inside you where you want to know the power of God. Maybe you think there is a God. How do I know him? It starts with being restored. Restored in relationship because the Bible is very clear. There's a breach in relationship because of sin. So Paul says the power toward us who believe. Without believing, you're never going to know the power of God. You have to start there. Believe. So, how would you design your restoration? Would you have God devise a plan to rescue you? He did. Would you have God be the rescuer? He is. Would you have a guarantee? <laughs> there is one. You believers know what I'm talking about. God guaranteed the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. How would you design your restoration? Especially if you think, I'm not good enough. I don't know what baggage you've got. I, I know many people think, I've got too much baggage, Mark. Let me show you a verse. This is God's words, not Mark's. 2 Peter 3.9. God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Finish it with me. But for all to come to repentance. But for all. God is patient. He is merciful. He loves you. So you may be thinking right now, this is way too good to be true. How? 
can I do this considering my past? You don't know my history. Get your amens ready. It's not because of what you've done. It's because of what he's done. It's not about you. It's about you, but it's not about you. If it was dependent upon you, we'd be sunk, wouldn't we? It's not about us. We don't have the power to save ourselves. It's about what he's done. So what do you do with this information? First of all, I encourage you, take God at his word. I I implore you, take God at his word. Don't be slow of heart. God says, I'll give you a brand new beginning. Your sin is a wound that can be healed. You can start over again. Everybody can. So it's your choice. What do you do with the information? This is what God says to do with it. It says this in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I feel God telling me to just pray for a moment. Will you just pray with me for a second? God, I think there's somebody in the auditorium right now who's really doubting that Jesus was resurrected. And I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them right now. God, work in this situation. Amen. We deal with a principle here at New Hope, and this applies to you, especially if you're doubting right now. What you believe about God determines what you do next. It's not unique to me. It's a biblical principle. What you believe about God determines what you do. How do I respond to this? Jesus allows Emmaus Road moments in everybody's life. He did it today. You saw it in the story. So that their eyes of their heart would be opened and they would discover the power of God. He did it for these individuals. He would do it for you. All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You don't have to walk an aisle. Just tell God what you believe about him. I'm speaking, obviously, to individuals who may not believe yet, but let me just close this by speaking to those who do believe. You also need to be reminded that God brings Emmaus Road moments into your life. Look with me on the screen at this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those of us who are being saved, it is what, church? The, the power of God. When God allows things to happen in your life that completely derail you and confuse you and you can't make sense of them, Just like these individuals on the Emmaus Road, they've got a dead friend and they think God's plan has been blown up and they don't know what to do with it. That's when you're tempted to doubt. That's when you're tempted to lose your faith and question God. In the midst of those moments when maybe you've lost sight of him, Not being able to see him doesn't mean that he's not there. It just may be that because your circumstances are so hard, so traumatic, you can't even recognize him walking alongside you when God's right there in front of you. But he's got you because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Because you can't see him, but he's there. He's in this room right now. 
He's got your back. Those times are not the time. Those times, church, are not the times to neglect God's word. That's when you lean deeper into his word. You go deeper into the word of God. You got derailed? Search for truth in his word. So I'll put it right back on you again. What you believe about God determines what you do next. I believe, Mark Crane, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and was raised again the third day. Do I have some believers in this room? Amen. So therefore, I praise. We get to do that right now. I'm going to pray with you, and Michael's going to take us through a song. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your truth that's been declared, but it's your truth. It belongs to you, and we've lifted it up for your glory and your honor. We ask that you would accomplish your purposes with it. Use it for the expansion of your kingdom. Father, we ask right now for a special favor from you, from the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would help us not only to fill our lungs just with oxygen, but to reflect the power of what's in our lungs back into praise because the name of Jesus is worthy of it. So, Father, use these words for your glory, for your honor, and we celebrate what you did for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.